A rule of thumb is defined as a broadly accurate guide or principle based on experience or practice rather than theory. For example, a useful rule of thumb is that it takes about 10 hours to create one hour of audio content. And if you're a podcaster, you may have experienced this. A lot of what we know in product management is actually a rule of thumb. In fact, there's not a ton of sort of real science behind product management, so we count on broadly accurate principles based on practice. And some of those things we rely on are mental models, sometimes they're metaphors, there's templates and habits and methodology, but a lot of the things you could really characterize as rules of thumb. And of course, some of the things we rely on are just wrong, but that's a subject for a different episode. In this episode, I share three of my favorite product management rules of thumb, and I talk about why they are important. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 94 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. You can find the notes for this episode and links to all the resources I mentioned at secretsofpm.com slash 94. The goal of this podcast, of course, is to give you information and insights and tools to help you create better outcomes, whether that's products or marketing goals, things like that. In this episode, some tools that will give you a quick way to assess an idea and or your implementation of a solution. If you are just getting into product management or if you're busy leveling up into more senior positions, don't forget there's a ton of additional product management learning resources in my previous episode covering things like storytelling, persuasion, prioritization, working with developers, working with marketers, and on my website. And just a reminder, I do have a book, The Secret Product Manager Handbook, which you can easily find on Amazon. It's great for beginners and great for folks trying to level up in product management. I'll put a few links to all these useful resources in the show notes page, again, at secretsofpm.com slash 94. So let's start with why. Why am I telling you about my favorite rules of thumb for product management? Well, as I was working up the notes for this episode, I kept asking myself this question. I knew which rules of thumb I wanted to talk about. I've always felt these particular ones were important, but why should I be sharing them? And why would you care? So I had a little conversation with myself, as one does, as I do anyway, which you know if you listen to the podcast often, it's one of my techniques for creativity, literally talking to myself. And I realized rules of thumb play at least two roles in the challenges we face as product managers. First of all, they are decision-making aids. They help you validate your ideas and test your decisions. But they're also persuasion tools. In the absence of highly detailed data, or actually even in its presence a lot of the time, these rules allow you to show, in a visceral and a very big picture way, the value of the work you are doing or proposing. In fact, rules of thumb are really quite important for persuasion. If you don't have real data, in the sense of statistically valid numbers, which I've argued against anyway in the past in this podcast, it's really good to have powerful non-numeric arguments. And you're going to find that these rules kind of give you powerful non-numeric arguments about significant things, and they're going to help you be more persuasive. So there's a third aspect to this particular set of rules of thumb, which is that they're an almost complete set for making good product decisions. In fact, there's one key concept missing, but it's a lot harder to formulate that one into a rule of thumb, but I'll get to that in a little while. Even so, you can make and justify a lot of product management decisions if you're paying attention to these rules simply using these three. So let's get into it. My rules of thumb, there's three of them, as I mentioned. The first one, it has to work, meaning your product or solution needs to do what you say it does. Second one, not maybe quite so obvious, but I'm sure you've heard it around. It has to be 10 times better in some way. And I'll talk about what that means. And 
The third rule is it has to fit into the process which you're improving. And I'll give a lot of examples on that one as well. Why is it has to work even a rule of thumb? Isn't it kind of obvious that it has to work, that your product has to do what you say it is? Is it kind of just a law? Well, I don't know. When I first started thinking about rules of thumb for product management, and this was many, many years ago, I felt this rule belonged in the category of rules of thumb as opposed to laws. In fact, the rules of thumb I'm talking about today are kind of in that category just based on the fact that they aren't accurate per se. So how does something get into this rule of thumb category, like it has to work? Well, it's when there are other possible ways of thinking about a situation, but they are wrong or they're badly suboptimal. And I think this particular rule of thumb sits into that model. There are lots of ideas about what makes a product good, but if you forget this fundamental rule that it has to work, your product will not be good because it will be a failure. But there's more to it. Some of the things we love to think about that make our products good, like things like their performance, or that they're easy to use, or they depend on interesting technology, are not actually important. If the product doesn't work, those things don't matter. I like the example from Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma book. And he talked about the rise of two and a half inch disk drives. Now this happened quite a long time ago when the existing form factor had already shrunken down to five and three, five and a quarter inch disk drives. And they were used in lots of computers like personal computers and things. And then two and a half inch disk drives came on the market and they enabled a bunch of things, including things like the iPod. So two and a half inch disk drives were a disruptive innovation because they were much smaller than existing disk drives. That's kind of obvious. There were a lot of ways in which they were inferior to the existing larger drives that were dominant, but there were two specific properties they had that were more important. Obviously, they were two and a half inches in form factor, which meant they could fit into much smaller devices. And of course, the number one property that they had in common with the other devices was that they actually held data and allowed it to be retrieved. The most important characteristic of a disk drive is that it works to hold data. And this is what I meant by it has to work. It has one main job, and it has to be able to do that, even if it doesn't do it as well in other ways as the competition. And of course, you have to have a differentiator in that case as well. Well, in this case, obviously, the differentiator was size. In, in any case, you have to have some kind of differentiator. So the idea being that even though these two and a half inch disk drives were not as fast as the existing five and a quarter, you didn't have as many options, they probably weren't as ruggedized, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that they did work to hold data in that tiny form factor meant that they could essentially win the battle for a particular segment. And then of course, as they as that segment grew and as the disk drive makers got better at it, they did start to match the previous incumbents in terms of their quality and other kinds of performance characteristics. But this leads to the next rule of thumb, which is the factor of 10 rule. Your product to win customers has to be 10 times as good as at least their base do nothing option. For example, if you have a new business application in the market to solve a problem that your prospects currently solve with a spreadsheet, your solution has to be 10 times better in some way at solving that problem than their spreadsheets are. It has to be 10 times faster or 10 times easier to use or 10 times more likely to get the right answer or 10 times less likely to result in data corruption or whatever. It turns out if you make a business app that replaces a spreadsheet, it's pretty easy to make it a lot better. You actually have to watch out that you don't get to the point where it doesn't actually work, even though it's faster, but 
it's pretty easy to make it 10 times better. But note that the factor of 10 has to be along a dimension that someone considers important. If it's a business application, then it has to be 10 times better along a dimension that's meaningful to the business, which usually boils down to faster, cheaper, or higher quality results that are less likely to cause the company to lose money or make it more likely that they'll make more money or to reduce legal risks or something like that. Simply being 10 times prettier will not win you the deal if you're selling business software because that's not an interesting dimension to businesses. In fact, usability itself often has little to no impact on your success in business software. I can give you a long list of very successful business applications that are horrendous to use, even in 2021, after decades of designers and users beating the drum for ease of use. How does this rule apply in the two and a half inch disk drive space? Well, this is actually kind of an extension to the rule in the two and a half inch disk drive situation. Your product has to be 10 times better or it has to enable something that the competitors simply aren't able to deliver. And in this case, a much smaller form factor adheres to that rule. I kind of consider the factor of 10 rule to be similar to the a whole new use case that you couldn't do before. Those are sort of related. So maybe the rule should be that it has to be 10 times better or enable a completely new use case. That might be a better way to think about it. However, it is rare for products to enable completely new use cases. Photoshop, which is one of my favorite examples, but for a different reason, which we'll come to in a few minutes, actually did enable a new use case, photo editing on a computer. That was a pretty amazing transformation. But it really aligned more in terms of product success with my third rule of thumb. So the final rule of thumb, it's kind of obvious in retrospect, but I think it's often not considered properly. It particularly has to do with business applications and products, but it also applies in other domains. I call this rule the three boxes rule because if you draw it out, you can think of boxes A, B, and C in a particular business process of things that happen in that business process. Your product replaces the part of the process that happens in box B, but it's very important that the output of box A will feed into your thing and the output of your box feeds into box C. That's why I call it the three boxes rule. In other words, the application has to fit into the existing process, even if it makes big changes in the part that it replaces. So this is where Photoshop is a great example. So think about magazines in the days before Photoshop and decades before Kindles and iPads. They included lots of color photographs. The way these photographs were processed for print was very manual and all based literally on film and paper. Photo editing consisted of using X-Acto knives and colored pens and lots of what was called ruby lith, which is a kind of sheet of plastic and other, all kinds of other tools. If you wanted to composite two pictures together, you'd print both pictures out, you'd use an X-Acto knife to cut out the parts that you wanted to combine, you'd paste those parts onto a board, and then you'd take a photo of the combination. Literally, that's what you did. This was a highly specialized job, it was painstaking, easy to make a mistake, and very limited in terms of the effects you could achieve. And then along comes Photoshop, with all the tools that photo editors used, were used to already, but in a computer and with a lot of other tools as well. So you could scan a photograph into your computer, apply all the changes you wanted, including multiple new ways to composite images, mess with colors, overlay duotones, and so many more things, and then you'd print that edited photograph out and paste it into your magazine layout. And that was amazing. Because even though Photoshop gave you a way to manipulate digital images, the camera still took analog images on film and magazines were still pasted up on paper. So for the first years of Photoshop, it was the only digital step in that photography life cycle. 
And only later did the big, fancy, pro-level digital cameras come along, along with full digital production for the magazines themselves. Now, for some of you listening, this entire transformation had happened probably by the time you were born, but I lived through it, and I have many friends, graphic designers here in Silicon Valley, who made their living with ruby lith and X-Acto knives and photostat cameras, laying up magazines and annual reports on pasteboard. Now, they all migrated to Photoshop, of course, but they all talk fondly about those old days of paper and tape and all that kind of stuff. So getting back to the point, Photoshop was entirely digital, but the rest of the process was analog on paper and film. So it was critical for Adobe, the producer of Photoshop, that they could get pictures into the app and get pictures out of the app to be pasted into physical layouts. So at the same time they were pushing Photoshop as the app, they were working with manufacturers to ensure there were photo scanners that were up to the task of scanning magazine quality photos and digital printers that could print the finished photos out to be used in layouts. Now, I did a little research on this transformation in the magazine industry. It's actually surprisingly undercovered on in places like Wikipedia and actually the internet in general. Surprising. It's one of those things that sort of happened at the wrong time in the digital age because nobody really wrote down what was happening when it when it was going on. But I do remember all that stuff and thinking at the time, man, Photoshop is cool, but how do I get the pictures in to Photoshop? And a lot of times you had to create, if you were just a hobbyist, you would create your own pictures in Photoshop. You didn't start from photographs because you didn't have a scanner. They were really expensive. And then gradually hobby size scanners became available. And of course, now we can take photos, digital photos with our cameras or sorry, with our phones. And, um, it, the whole problem has gone away essentially at this point because photos are all digital in their whole life cycle. But in the old days, they were not, and that you needed a solution. And if if a magazine wanted to use Photoshop as part of its production process, it had to have solved these problems, and that required big, expensive scanners, and everybody was still working on film. So the point is, the point is, Photoshop could not have been successful without having that. M- ability to take something from the analog world and scan it in, which was done by a third party, it wasn't done by them, and then have the ability to output their digital photo into something that the magazine could use. So it was very important for the success of Photoshop that those other things existed, and they didn't really exist in great numbers at the time when Photoshop came out. So I did talk about something that was missing from these three rules. I have these three rules, and they're really product or solution focused. Does the product do something useful in a useful way is a way to summarize that. And there's no question that's important to be able to consider that question. And the solution, of course, is a big part of what we do as product managers. But there is something that's missing from my set of rules and many other sets of rules that I've talked about or read about. And that's the question of, is there anyone who will buy it? Now, I don't know a good way to capture that question into a rule of thumb, unfortunately, at least one that will help you answer the question is this product or solution worth building? It would be a rule of thumb about the size and accessibility of the market. I don't really know how you'd address that in a little pithy rule of thumb, but it is true that a successful product requires a market that's big enough and accessible enough that you can sell to them. Obviously, they should also be in pain from not having a good solution, and they should have their wallets out because they're ready to get a solution, all those things. So, That's the missing rule of thumb. I think there's really four important keys about successful products. It has to work. It has to be 10 times better. It has to fit into the process, and there has to be people that want to buy it. 
with money and pain. Okay, so four things. So let's talk about how these rules of thumb interact with other kinds of mental models and concepts in product management. So my rules of thumb map in a really interesting way to Doug Hall's Three Laws of Marketing Physics, which also don't say anything about a market, interestingly enough. I've talked about Doug Hall's Three Laws of Marketing Physics on the podcast before. I think episode 70 is where you can find that out. But in fact, these rules of thumb really illustrate the idea that the more mental models you have, the better decision-making you can do. Because if you combine the rules of thumb with the three laws of marketing physics and a few other models, you really cover the whole spectrum of product management. But if you don't have all these models, you might not be thinking enough at a big enough picture size about your product and solution. So for example, the value proposition, which is a simple framework that's about who your product is for, what it does, and why it's better. Again, it doesn't really talk too much about the market size, although it does talk about who the market is. There's another great mental model that I love called, it's for short, RWW. Is it real? Is it worth it? Should we do it? Which definitely includes the idea of a market that exists and is ready or at least willing to buy, although it doesn't really say much about the solution itself. That's not really part of RWW. Then there's the three laws of marketing physics that I mentioned from Doug Hall's Jumpstart Your Business Brain. The three laws of marketing physics is that it has to have an overt benefit, meaning you can explicitly say what the benefit of your solution is. There has to be a dramatic difference. That's like a factor of 10 improvement over something. And it has to have a real reason to believe, which is really about that it works, right? That that you can substantiate to the prospect or the customer that, that they can believe you when they say that you'll get this benefit with this difference. So these are all about how to position and market the product, but they don't really, again, talk about the market itself. Now, my rules of thumb, it has to work, needs to be 10 times better than no solution. It has to fit into the business process, which are all about the properties of the solution. And they have an implicit sense of the market, but it's not explicit. And agile development, that's another mental model. Of course, it's also practiced as a methodology and things, but the mental model of agile development, which is about how to get the highest value to market as fast as possible. So those are all a bunch of mental models that all kind of work together in a synergistic way to cover a lot of the things you have to think about as a product manager. So I always want to give you some concrete actions you can take to put these ideas in my episodes into practice. And I'm going to give you one thing, an assignment that will help you cement some of these ideas, strengthen your product management muscles, and maybe get some insights. And that's really related to if you have a product already and you can actually choose some other product if you don't have one yourself, I really think it's a great exercise to articulate out loud or in writing, in other words, not just in your head, how it's 10 times better than what your ideal customers or prospects are currently using. If it's a business app, that usually means how is it better than a bunch of spreadsheets that they're using to solve this problem. If it's a consumer app or device, how is this better than the previous generation of solutions? Now, this might be in the context of one particular segment that's not well served by the existing solution. And of course, being 10 times better in some way doesn't mean it has to be 10 times better in all ways. In fact, it might be worse in some ways, and that's okay if they're not that important to the target segment at the moment. So I probably sound like a broken record, but I think coming to grips with all the mental models I have mentioned previously, the value proposition, the RWW model, the three laws of marketing physics, and the agile development mental, mental model of focusing on building the most valuable thing you can first, those will all stand you in good stead and you really want them floating around in your brain all the time. 
I'll put links to podcast episodes and articles about these different ideas in the show notes at secretsofpm.com slash 94, and you can go find those episodes and take a listen. So I hope you found this episode interesting and useful on rules of thumb. I love talking about mental models and decision-making tools. And as I said, there's lots of episodes in the archives about these topics. If you have comments or complaints or thoughts on this episode or any other episode, you can drop me a line on the site at secretsofpm.com slash 94, or let me know on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Nels Davis on both. If you like this type of content, I do have two requests. Let me know that you like it. I really value your comments and thoughts, and you might be surprised to hear that I'm not flooded with feedback. Every little bit of feedback is welcome and valuable, even if it's really just high. Now, the best way to help others learn about the podcast actually is to rate and review it on iTunes. It makes it much more discoverable, or wherever you get your podcasts if you don't use iTunes. Even clicking the star button in a player like Overcast does help. Also, of course, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in your player of choice if you haven't already. And be sure to share the episode with your friends and or enemies, depending on how you felt about it. Until next time, this is Nels Davis. Bye-bye.